Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is championed. I am Sharissa Wood, a practicing dental hygienist who wants to share my passion for all things hygiene and the oral systemic connection to help empower, encourage, and equip you listeners. Bulletproof Hygiene's ultimate goal is to bring knowledge and tools that facilitate optimal patient care, healthy team culture, and professional fulfillment. If you are a growth-minded hygienist or dental professional looking to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene, then you're in the right place. Now, let's dive in and become Bulletproof together. Welcome back to another week of Bulletproof Hygiene. I hope that you are all tuning in from a place of fulfillment and enjoyment in what you get to do for your patients every day. And I am super excited today to introduce our guest, Candice Swarthout. She is a fellow hygienist making a big impact in our profession, in her community, and honestly, I believe the world. Um, Like I said, she's a fellow hygienist. She is also a licensed professional counselor. And she's a full-time dental hygiene educator in Texas, where she teaches community dentistry and research. Candice is the owner of Inspired Education and Wellness, where she is a speaker, writer, and private practice therapist. She combines her clinical, dental, and mental health experience to help other healthcare professionals have a fulfilling work-life experience. Candice is an approved provider under Texas Health and Human Services for human trafficking training for healthcare professionals. She is also the owner of Muffins and Mimosas, which is a dental study that offers fun in-person dental CE that brings together friends in an inclusive and relaxed environment. You can find her articles in Dentistry IQ, Today's RDH, and RDH Magazine, and I encourage you to follow her on social media uh, through Instagram. She is at the Counselor Hygienist. Candice, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny. I always say that as hygienists, we play the role of therapists. You know, we always have patients sharing sometimes more than we wish they would um, and just kind of counseling and helping and, and being there for them. But you really embrace this title and role. So will you share about your journey as both hygienist and therapist? What came first and, and how does this all look? Sure. So I graduated from dental hygiene school in 1997. So I'm dating myself here. Um, so I practiced for a long time, clinical private practice. And I just, I always knew like right when I graduated from dental hygiene school, I always knew I wanted my master's degree. And I kind of just went back and forth on what do I really want to spend the time learning about. And I'm always have been fascinated with fitness, like exercise, physiology, nutrition, thought I might go that path. And I just got to a point in my clinical career where I was so burned out. I just, I just didn't have it in me anymore. I just felt like I needed to move on from dentistry. And so then that's when I started looking at what do I want? What, what do I want to pursue? And I, I had, I was one credit away from having a second minor in psychology. So I was pretty familiar with, you know, some, the psychology piece of it. And that's what I decided on. I thought, you know, just like you said, we in our chairs, we are oftentimes we we fill that role and our patients, they'll confide things in us that they might not tell anybody else because they feel safe with us. They trust us and we build those great relationships. So I felt like I had that foundation of being able to build really close, intimate relationships with people who are patients. So I thought it would be a really natural transition to become a counselor. And, and interestingly, it wasn't, it wasn't because I started to realize as I started to realize what a therapeutic conversation looks like with my clients is really different than the supportive conversations I was having with patients. It it feels different, you know, but at the same time, understanding that what we do as hygienists, that we might be the only person that patient ever speaks out to. And that we hold that space sacred and that we have to be the holders of that space and treat it as something sacred. And so I went through the process of grad school. And then the biggest part of it was the internship. So to get licensed, you need 3000 hours. And that took me a while. That took me several years because I was working full time as an educator at the same time. And so I was doing a lot of jail 
ministry. I was going to say time. I'll say jail time, but I shouldn't speak that way. Right. I was doing counseling in the jail, spending time in the jail. And that's where I saw a majority of the clients during that, that internship time. And it was just really fulfilling. And I grew so much as not only a counselor, but personally being able to sit with people in their pain, being able to sit with people while they are having, you know, hallucinations or, you know, what, whatever is going on with them is, is really, really powerful. And, and so I was thought I was leaving dentistry. That was my plan. And I'm still here. So I've been teaching now for 10 years. I, I see a few clients. I'm in a very small private practice where I see a few clients, but mostly what I learned through this journey was that dentistry needs to hear more about mental health. And there are so many topics where we this comes together because we do fill that role for our patients. And so that's been one of my primary goals is to talk to as many hygienists and dentists and assistants that I can on when we see trauma in our patients, when we recognize that, why patients behave a certain way in our chairs when they have some maybe some kind of overreactive behavior and where might that come from? What are the roots of that? And then kind of connected to this human trafficking piece. So that's kind of where I am now is in education, working with my mental health clients, but then also really focusing on that trauma-informed care piece and human trafficking and helping as many dental professionals as I can recognize that and support them in supporting their patients. Well, and, and, you know, this is one of the reasons, obviously, that I wanted to have you on the show is I know you're very passionate about bringing awareness and, and ending human trafficking, which makes you an absolute hero in my book. So what led you down that path specifically? What drew you to that? So going back a little bit before that, when I was in my internship in counseling school, I was at this event where we were we were opening up this um new clinic. And I was speaking with my supervisor and she had said to me, I need to talk to you because I have this client that has to have about three or four appointments with me before she can get her teeth cleaned. And I thought, okay, that seems a little extreme. And then she says to me, because I'm sure, you know, since you're a hygienist, that people who've had childhood sexual trauma have dental fear they have more dental fear. And I was like, I did, I had never heard these two things connected before. So what I did, I guess is what, you know, I don't know who else would do this, but I lied. <laughs> I just looked her in the face and I said, yeah, yes. I well, know. I'm going to tell, I'll tell you, I'll fess up right now. I didn't, I didn't know that that was a connection. So yes. Yeah, I had never heard that before. And, and I stood there thinking like, I've been a hygienist at the time, probably for 15 years. Now I'm about to be a therapist. I've never heard of this before. And so I just felt like I needed to start digging. And so I did. And I started looking into the research and I found so much about it in the connection. So that's where this really started was with thinking about talking about, that's when I put together my first continuing education course was on trauma, past trauma and how it relates to dental fear. And through that avenue, I started to learn about human trafficking and what that means to us as providers. And then sitting in the jail at the time, we weren't talking about human trafficking like we are now. And when I look back on the women that I treated while I was there, I can go, oh my gosh, she was being trafficked and she was being trafficked. And, and at the time I couldn't recognize it because I didn't know what it was. I thought it was something different and that well, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying that, that really got my attention about where else am we, are we missing it? And I started to see the connection between that. There are patients that are held captive that do come to the dental office. And so it led me in this direction of, you know, how can I learn more about it and how can I, teach as many, again, dental professionals that'll listen. And so I, and I was in the process of, I had written a CE for RDH magazine and it was actually in peer review when Texas passed a law that every dental professional, every healthcare professional in Texas now is required to take a course, a training course. And so I was very, very excited about that. I didn't know that was coming, 
it just sort of presented itself. And so that's really opened the door because it's required now. So that's really opened the door for me to be able to get in front of a lot of dental medical professionals. I speak to physicians and dietitians and dental groups, counselors. I'm speaking at a counseling conference in a few weeks. And and so that that law has really made a big difference in awareness. Yeah, that's incredible. And I I'm a big believer in God putting pieces in place and and yep, setting absolutely. the table for that. And clearly that happened. So that's it amazing. It did. It did. It was the perfect setting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's it, kind of diving into this conversation. Let's just establish. Will you help our listeners kind of define human trafficking? What what does that look like? Sure. So it is modern day slavery and it looks a lot different than what we think we have. I think a lot of people, and I, I, I think this because of the conversations that I've had with people is that we look at it as something that happens to people who are overseas. They're not in this country or they're brought here from another country. I believe that a lot of people also see it as being held physically captive. So there's a lot of misinformation floating around on the internet. There's a lot of sensationalism where we'll see pictures of, you know, you see kids where there's ropes tied around them or their hands and their arms are chained up that they have tape over their mouth or someone's hands over their mouth. And, and does that happen sometimes? Yes, it does. But most of the time, overwhelmingly, modern day slavery, people are walking around with us. They are coming into our offices. They are doing things like working as strippers. They're working as prostitutes. It might even not even be in the sex trade. It might be somebody who works at this neighborhood that's being built across the street from me right now. So it can come in the form of, usually in the United States, we see it in the form of either labor trafficking or sex trafficking. People who are labor trafficked will be promised something that they never, ever get. So people who are coming across our border right now, they are prime time for being trafficked. It's it's terrible. So they come over here wanting a better life for themselves. They come in contact with someone that promises them that. Then they transport them somewhere. They give them the job. They give them, they might even give them clothing and a house and food. And then they end up in this debt bondage with these people, with their employers. So they work for little or no pay. They end up in really abusive situations. And then they felt like they can never get out of it because they may be threatened and they might be in such debt to this person. And so they end up enslaved. The the most mistreated labor traffic people work inside houses as nannies because it's behind closed doors and people will take advantage of that. So they have the tendency to be the most abused. And then from a sex trafficking perspective, it can be anything, you know, from, again, overwhelmingly, it's either a parent, a family member, a romantic partner that sex traffics someone. So, you know, depending on where we want to go with this, I could probably tell you a bunch of different stories, but the most common way that looks is that a trafficker will contact someone through you know, anything from their Instagram page to a dating app, and they will pose as someone that's romantically interested in them. They usually will pick someone that's a vulnerable person, somebody that's looking for love, looking for connection, and they will start that relationship out as a romantic partner. And then that changes that what, what the girls will say a lot of times is one day he was just different. One day I came home and it was different. He um, asked me to do something that he's never asked me to do. And sometimes that's in the form of manipulation. Hey, if you don't do this for me, if you, if you'll sleep with this guy, then I won't owe him money anymore. And then you'll save my life. Sometimes it's more forceful. It's um, beating, it's gang raping, it's things that will, they'll try to break them physically and mentally break them in order to get them to do what they want. And that can be right now, we're seeing that the most targeted population of sex trafficked girls is between the ages of 12 and 14. If you can even wrap your mind around that. Yeah, that breaks my heart. Yes. So, you know, you mentioned that I do, I think a lot of people envision, you know, it's it's people from other countries coming in, but, 
I know it does look different in the United States that, you know, from my understanding, it's 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 prevalent. Do you know any of the stats as far as what's happening in the United States? Well, as far as statistics go, I can tell you there's it, it's it's cloudy. And here's why, because it's so underreported. Right. So even the, the statistics that we do know, we're not even sure if they're correct. I can tell you that things like if a child is a survivor of sexual abuse, they have a 50% chance higher risk of being trafficked. If they are coming out of foster care, if they have been in the system in any way, then they have a higher chance. 80% are girls and women. And, but when we look at how many people, it's estimated that about 200,000 youth are lured into it every year. Oh, I know. Can you even wrap your mind around that? 200,000. And, and from what I understand, you know, this, this atrocity is happening pretty much in every community within our nation. Do you think that's fair to say? Absolutely. In fact, I live in a really nice neighborhood. I live in an area where there's a major PGA golf tournament that happens like literally across the street, they park in our street. That's how close we are to it. So this is an affluent area. And my boyfriend and I sat about two months ago at a bar and we watched a whole thing go down where the, it to me, what it looked like was a pimp and what's called a bottom girl. A bottom girl is a prostitute that has earned the trust of a pimp to the point where now she's the recruiter. And a lot of them end up being bottom girls at some point because it's a different role for them. And it's a, it's not necessarily safer, but it's a different lifestyle role. And so we watched them buy shots for the waitresses as they came off duty shot after shot after shot. We watched the way that the girl was, she was so charming and the way they were drawn to her. And then we watched other people come in and out and how they followed the girls. And it was, it was so scary to me. And so I ended up reporting it to Homeland Security. But this is, like I said, this is right down the street from my house. It's a nice neighborhood. And so if it's happening here, it's happening, it's happening anywhere, anywhere in the United States in our own backyards. How, you know, on the front of, you know, how do people get trafficked? Obviously, that's an example. What does that look like for, you know, I know you just said, so the, the number one age bracket is between 12 and 14 year old girls. How is that happening? Social media. Uh-huh. Social media is the most powerful tool. So it's believed that 750,000, okay, let me say the number again, oh. 750,000 predators are online right now at any given moment as we speak. And they will, they'll DM, they'll look for any, it could be any child, anybody that they think that would be a target for them. they DM and they pose as somebody else. And if you look at stories of undercover police officers that try to draw people in this way, you'll see that within minutes of an account being created, that predators will hit these accounts. And so then what they do is they build that relationship. They pose as I'm either a boyfriend, girlfriend, a friend, um, a modeling agency, um, an opportunity of some sorts, and they friend them. Another way that they can kind of get them under control is that they will ask for provocative photos. So they'll get them to trust enough. Hey, will you send me a photo? Well, can I see a little more? Can I see a little more? And then at some point they have something that they can blackmail them with. And this happens often. Yes. So that is an incredibly repulsive number of Mm -hmm. traffickers. Mm -hmm. Who are the traffickers? What is this? What does that look like? That's a good question. It can be anybody from a high powered business person, which we've all seen this in the media. It can be, And that could be anywhere from this, a political figure to a street pimp and anyone in between. It can be male and female. They're, they're mostly males. They will recruit females. Like I said, they'll, they'll recruit some of the girls that work for them to be recruiters as well. Most of the time when we see a female recruiter, we'll start to consider her as being a traffic person as well, because she's usually doing it under some force, fraud or coercion, not always, but 
And, and then they can look at different ways when we even look at pimps. So we can see pimps that we could call a Romeo pimp. That's the one that poses as being the romantic partner. We can see pimps that are gorilla pimps. These are the ones that will go straight to the abuse. And then CEOs have a little bit more hands-off and a more of a manipulative, manipulative control. The traffickers can be parents. And that can be so hard for us to recognize that because if you see a child uh, that's with their parent, we might just make the assumption that the parent is protecting them. Right. When, In fact, there's a survivor that I know that has helped me with the course that I give and her first trafficker was her mom. Mm -hmm. And it, so it comes in all, all shapes and sizes. Yeah. I was listening um, to another podcast about sex trafficking um, very, very recently. And he said something that was, that resonated with me. He was talking about, you know, you think about, um, you know, uh, alcoholism and who does that affect? Mm-hmm. He said anyone, and that's mm-hmm. he. He was likening the traffickers. It it can be anyone. It can be coaches. It can be pastors. It can be businessmen. It can be teachers. It can be your next door neighbor. Like it's yes. it's yeah. it's very scary to think about that. There's so this is so prevalent and so yes. hidden. And one of the things that I talk about in my course, and it's a little bit of a soapbox that I get on, is that we as a society have. We're prote- I feel like sometimes we protect our kids the wrong way because now we're saying, don't go outside, don't go play down the street. Like that's what I did growing up right. is that we just left for the day on our bikes yep. and streetlights came on. And we we're like, oh, we better get home. Right. Yep. The yep. parents didn't even really know where we were. And we're so afraid now as parents to do that because we're afraid that someone's going to snatch them up down the street and snatch them into a van. Now, does that happen? Yeah, absolutely. It does happen. We see kidnappings happen, but when it comes to this topic of trafficking, it's almost always someone they know. And that someone they know is generally someone they met on the internet. It could be someone that came to their school. It could be the neighbor. It could be, like you said, it could be the pastor. It could be someone at church, whatever. But when our children are doing this, right. And they're just in their phone and it's not being monitored. And there's 750 thousand opportunities, right. For that person to end up in their, in their inbox that I just think we need to be protecting them differently. We need to be protecting them on their devices. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say when you said, you know, now, now parents are like, Hey, I don't want you, you know, playing out front. Now, instead you're sitting in your room on your phone, which is more dangerous at this point. Yeah. So we have to ask, is your child safer outside in the front yard, kicking a soccer ball, or are they safer sitting on your couch while you can see them looking at their phone? Right. Oh, it's terrifying. It is terrifying. So, you know, obviously I'm guessing as you have already said, you know, these people get trapped in this. Cause you know, the question is, you know, you said, Hey, these people are walking among us. We may see them in our practices. Mm-hmm. Why don't they leave? And I'm guessing it's out of fear. Absolutely. So they're they're being held captive through force, fraud, or coercion. So those are the those three kind of key words that we hear when we talk about trafficking. And I want to say this, I want to just interject this little piece really quick, is that's kind of one of the things if we're going to hold someone accountable for being a trafficker, we're going to prove that they did this under force, fraud, or coercion, unless it's a minor. So if someone is a minor and they're participating in a commercial sex act, even pornography, they are considered a traffic person. Even if they are seemingly there on their own accord, there's no such thing as a 16 year old prostitute. Right. So there's that. Um, but the, the adult, the, anybody who's 18 years or older, they will stay in these relationships because of trauma bonds is one thing. So a trauma bond is used to be called the Stockholm syndrome. So this is when someone becomes emotionally attached to their abuser, that the abuser will show them these times of normalcy. They will show them love, attention, um, gratitude, whatever, whatever they think that person wants. And then the abuse comes around. So then there's that cycle of abuse and the victim is always holds on to that hope that you know what? He's in, he, this isn't the man he really is. I know who he really is. He's that person that loves me and supports me. 
And that always comes back around because it's a cycle. And so they'll hold on to that hope that this person really loves them. Uh, they'll stay because they think that they don't have any place else to go. They've been in the sex business for now. Let's say someone's been doing this for two years. They've been working as a prostitute for two years. Who's going to want them? Right. They're so deep in it that it becomes a way of life. And that's all they know. 80% of sex workers that are do it willingly were trafficked before the age of 18. So they were pulled into it and then they stay because that's what they know. Fear it. Like you said, absolutely. That there's fear that if they leave that they will be punished in a severe way. And so they'll, they'll stay in the life. And that's what, that's what they call it as being in the life and they'll stay and they'll stay. And they might not even know what they would do if they left, if they had the opportunity to walk out. Cause some, some of them do, some of them have that opportunity to walk out the front door and say, peace out. I'm not doing this anymore. But then where do they go? What are their resources? What do they do next? So is sex, sex work then is different than sex trafficking because sex work, you have the freedom to walk away. Absolutely. So sex yeah. work is when someone is doing it absolutely hundred percent on their own free will. There's no force, fraud, or coercion. There's no pimp. There's no, the, the girl, the money the girl makes, or even guy, their guy too. I'm, I'm not eliminating guys. This is just, you know, it's way more women than men that he or she get to keep hundred percent of the money they make. And it's all on their own rules. So they get to decide who they meet, where they meet, how often they do it. And if there's anything else involved, like a pimp or having to give a percentage of money to someone, then that's when it crosses over into that line, when there's that, that intimidation on the other side of it. Got it. So I'm, I'm guessing you have probably seen um, the recent popular movie, Sound of Freedom. Is, am I correct in that? Yes, I have seen that movie. Yeah, I have. I have seen that as well. It's very eye opening. The statistics they share are just overwhelming. Um, what are What are your thoughts? Um, I have really mixed feelings about it, and I I believe the conversations that I've had with some of the ladies that work in some of the local safe houses that I work with around here, we've had this conversation is that it was a great movie. It, I thought they did a really nice job with the um, spoiler alert, right? If somebody hasn't seen this movie, I might be spoiling right. it here. So like close your ears for about 15 seconds. I thought they did a really nice job with the lady who was the recruiter that she was somebody they knew. They trusted her. She found a way to build trust to the point the dad left his children with her. So that's, that's accurate. And the, the part about that movie that I, that I'm struggling with is that it leaves us in that belief that it doesn't happen here. It happens in other places that it's all, and it was all happened in another country and the end, you know, where he goes into the jungle and there's the big rescue and everything. I think the hard part for me about the way the movie ended was that I had people reaching out to me after the movie and they were saying, we saw this movie, but now we don't know what to do. We want to do something, but we don't know what to do because we can't go into the jungle and rescue kids. Right? right. And so a little bit of that kind of left out the fact that it is happening all around us and it just looks so different here. But I think yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was a great movie for awareness for sure. Right. Well, and I know that it was primarily based on a true, you know, yes. account of what happened. And I know they do talk about the stats of the United States. And I, you know, I've heard um, in multiple different podcasts that I've listened to on this that, you know, the U.S. is the number one partaker, mm -hmm. in, and that's insane. So yeah, yes. you're you're right. Like we we can't think about this as just something that happens in another place. And so that leads me into our our next segment of this is you know, considering the widespread prevalence of this epidemic, you know, I think if I'm being honest and I'm going to speak on behalf of our listeners here, I bet we probably think, well, we'd never see a, a patient that was sex trafficked because, you know, you do kind of have that mentality of they're kind of locked away in their house or people aren't going to let them out, you know, because they might tell someone, but I bet that's not what you're going to tell us is happening. So, you know, what, should we be looking for to identify as a person being trafficked? 
It's, that's a great question. So I'll start with that based on survivor accounts that over 80% of them say that they were taken to a healthcare provider while they were captive. About 63% emergency department, a vast majority go to women's wellness type of um, like, um, please help me for a like second. A Say again. Yes, but there's the... Um, the group that is, I think they're a nonprofit. I'll, I'll, I'll get it. It's not in my head right now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then 27% have reported going to the dentist. Really? Okay. Yes. And so there is, there's a large number of them, but emergency department will see the most, but you know, with 27% reporting going to the dentist, then there is an opportunity for us to come in contact with a traffic person in our chair. And so what we're looking for is the, the, the biggest sign is that um, Planned Parenthood, I got it. I had to say it while it there came back in my head. So a place like Planned Parenthood, yes. we'll see a yes. lot okay. of traffic people. The biggest sign that we're going to see is someone that is with them, an accompanying person that is in control of the appointment. So this person's going to fill out paperwork for them. They're going to speak for them at health history. They're going to answer all the questions. They just seem overly bearing and involved in the conversation. So that's going to be one of my first clues. Another clue is tattoos are very common. So these tattoos look like crowns, uh, money bags, barcodes, things that say daddy, initials, like a crown within the trafficker's initials next to it. And those might even be visible tattoos. We're going to look for behaviors like really shut down um, lack of eye contact is a big one. So a lot of times they really have a difficult time. People who have been severely traumatized will have a difficult time making eye contact with us. They might be overly attached to their phone, especially if they're alone that because if they're alone, that person might be in control of them through their device. And so if you ask them, you know, well, can you put down your phone for a moment? They're very, very anxious about that. And we, and then, you know, when I talk about this too, I realize that when I talk about that, they might be shut down, they might have this nervous behavior that could just be run of the mill dental fear as well. Right. Right. And so yes. just because we see somebody behaving that right. way, doesn't mean we automatically go to, oh, is this person being traffic? But you know, you, you know, I know the people watching, we know we have that when you have that gut feeling something isn't right here. Right. The person with them, that doesn't feel right. The behavior doesn't feel right that they might present as, you know, maybe being overly dressed, overly provocative for a dental office, that there are signs that there is substance abuse happening. And we put all those pieces together and we can start to go, okay, something's going on here. What is it? And, and following our trusting our gut in that. And not taking just one of the things I've said and being like, like I said, right. like that's a traffic person, that's a traffic person, but looking at the big picture. So if we have that gut feeling and we're seeing some of those signs, what do we do next with that? Are there certain questions we can ask? Is there, you know, who do we reach out to? What is, what does all of that look like? Yeah. So the number one most important thing is if you, if you've decided that you think this person's trafficked and you think you want to do something about it. First, let's talk about the difference between a minor and an adult. So okay. if it's a minor as a healthcare professional, I am absolutely, I have to report it. Okay. I'm mandated to do so. So wh whatever that looks like for your state. So in Texas, I have to report it within 48 hours of suspecting it. And that might look like calling law enforcement I'm calling child protective services or family protective services, but I need to file a report of some sorts if it's a child. And if I want to speak with the child and maybe try to find out some more information, absolutely have to get them alone. Right. Okay. And the same with an adult. So let's say if it's a child, we need to report that to the appropriate law enforcement to the appropriate agency within the time frame that your state says you have to. Some states are 24 hours, some states are 72. So I would say, look it up for what your state says. Okay. If it's an adult, we, we can't force them to do anything. And there's still all these gray lines, blurry lines about 
what do we really do to report this if it's an adult? Because he or she might be staying in this, they might, it might be their choice to stay in the situation, but what we can do, number one, get them alone before anything else. We can get them alone by, Hey, I need to take radiographs on you. He can't stay in the room. Hey, can you go sit out in the waiting room and then have an opportunity to screen them if we want, if we think that that we, we, they feel like we're connected to them enough, or we feel strong enough about this, that screening is going to be next. And that's going to be about asking a question. Now I'll say this, there are out there online floating around. And when I teach this course, I have to provide a list of screening questions there's not a valid list of questions that says, here's five questions that you should ask someone if you think they're being trafficked. I don't even like right. the ones they they recommend. They're so, like, they're so to the point. There, has anybody asked, has anybody made you work for, you know, have sex for work? I'm not going to ask a patient that straight up. Right, right, right. What are they, right? What are they going to say to me if... The people in their lives, their boyfriend, their parent, that they are supposed to be able to trust more than anybody else. They can't trust them. They're being abused by them. Why are they going to trust me? Why are they going to trust you? Right. Right? And, and so I'm not going to ask them that bold of a question. I'm going to go in a little bit softer. And I hope by that time I've recognized something and I've started to build the trust, even with the other person in the room. So I've made eye contact with them. I'm showing them that I'm being empathetic. I'm being compassionate. Once I get them alone, I might start with something really simple like, oh, I noticed your tattoo. I have tattoos too. What is, you know, I know, I know that everyone's tattoo has a meaning. What does yours mean? So there's things like that and see if you can get them talking. Yeah. If you feel like you need to work fast and you just want to jump in and you want to get right to the point, I would still soften it and say something like, are you safe? Right. Is, are you, are you okay? Do you need help? Is there anything I can help you with? Right. If we're going to do that, then the next step is we need some resources. Yes. And so the resources are that we can go to the human trafficking hotline. It's run by the Polaris project. And if you go to polarisproject.com, you can find that phone number. You can find all the information there where you can report So what I recommend is that offices have that somewhere that's nearby and that they can, they can have it either in their phone, they have it written down somewhere near their phones. And if they needed to call it, they could do that. Now, what that could look like is that you excuse yourself. If you're not sure what to do, let's just say you're like, I have no idea what to do right now. I can't get her alone. I'm afraid to say anything. You could go call the hotline and see if you could get them to lead you in the right direction. Or maybe the person you've screened them and they say, yes, I need help. You can offer that to them. You can say, do you want to use my phone and call and get some resources? And if you feel like someone's in imminent danger, like there's someone's going to be hurt, then that's when you get law enforcement involved. But it's really important not to get law enforcement involved unless they're a minor or you feel like that somebody is in imminent danger. Because imagine that, imagine the police walking in the door of your office now, what that could lead to. Right. Right. Yeah. Very, very true. So in dealing with patients that have undergone trauma, and I'm, I'm asking you to put on your, your therapy hat at this point, counselor Mm -hmm. hat. Um, you know, we, we do have a lot of patients that have undergone trauma, whether that be true trafficking or physical or sex, sexual abuse, Will you give us as providers some advice for how to care for those patients in the best possible way? Because just like you said, we get that gut feeling and I've had it many times, you know, I've been practicing for 27 years now and there's many times where I can just tell exactly what you're saying, you know, that the eye contact isn't there. And this is for me, I've experienced this with older adults that I suspect there's something in their past that they are still really struggling with, but will you give us some advice? And obviously we're not counseling our patients, you know, we're not really helping them through that process, but what are some ways that we can really care for them in the appropriate way and be what they need us to be? I think the first thing is that we really have to get into that place of empathy and it can be hard for us because we have so many things to do in a really short amount of time. 
And so we get in that, like, we gotta, we gotta move. We gotta get on to the next thing. And when we recognize it, remembering that, you know what, today might not be the day we talk about OHI. Yeah. Right. Today might not even really be the day we even get through all the treatment because this, the conversation that you're going to have with your patient could be more important. So stepping back, trying to come at somebody through true empathy and instead of thinking, you know, we ha- all, all have had that patient where we put a mirror in their mouth and they freak out. Yep. And it could be a really natural inner response to think, dude, it's a mirror, right? It's yep. what's the big deal. Yep. But stepping back from that for a moment and going, what happened? What could have happened to her for her to respond this way? Right. Because there's a reason I don't believe that people are, I don't, I don't believe that anybody would do that to make our lives miserable, just to make our day harder. Right. Yes. Because there's a, it's a reaction. It's a response that's coming from somewhere. So a few things, just real simple things that we can do is one, we need to eliminate the power differential from our patients. We need to not be in a place of more power than them. And a super easy way to do that is sit them up even lift their chair up a little bit higher than yours, take off all the things, your loops, your mask, and have a face-to-face conversation with them and reflect to them what you're experiencing from them and say, how can I support you in this? Hey, I'm, I'm sitting you up because it seems like you're so nervous to be here. What can I do to support you? Not did something happen to you? Why are you nervous? I'm just noticing this about you and what can I do to help you through this? And a little bit of empathy goes so far when we ask those open-ended questions, when we show the patient, I care enough about you that I'm stopping everything. I'm taking my gloves off the whole thing. Right. Yep. And I reflect something back to you that, that could open up the floodgates. And most of the time, even if we don't get their full story, we're going to get something Yes. From them. Right. Yes. And sometimes that something might be like, I don't even know, like, I don't know why I'm so afraid to be here, but I have this, you know, deep fear that comes up. And every time I lay back in this chair and then you can have that conversation together and say, okay, how can we make it better together? Yes. I mean, we have to admit what a vulnerable position that is to lean someone back as we hover over them and go into a very intimate space. Like we have to recognize that. Um, And I'm, I'm a big believer in connecting with my patient before I ever even lean them back. And especially our new patients, we have a whole procedure where I have a whole knee to knee, eye to eye conversation. And one of the questions on our medical history is, rate your level of fear or an anxiety in being at the dental office. And so when they rank themselves in a higher number, I'll say, Hey, I see that you ranked yourself at a 10. Tell me a little bit about, mm-hmm. you know, why that is. And they'll start to talk about that. And I, you know, same thing. It's so funny. Cause I'm watching, I actually just had a patient on Friday who would not make eye contact with me for a really long time. And, you know, she had her, she even had her body turned a little bit away. She had her arms crossed and, you know, I'm thinking she's, she's, something's off. She's very, very anxious. And she gave herself a 10. And then she started telling me about previous dental experiences. And, you know, she had some trauma from that as in as through childhood. And it felt like such a win because by the end of the appointment, she had really engaged. She, her eye contact was great. She scheduled for what she needed. Um, so I know we made her feel comfortable, but I always say to those patients, I think this is a big, big win. Give them control at the very yes. top of the visit. And I always say, Hey, you know, here's what I want you to know. My number one goal is for you to be comfortable while you are here. I'm not going to do anything that you don't want to do. You are in control. It is your mouth. You get to make the calls. So if there's anything we're saying or doing that's not working, you throw your hands up. We right. will figure we're out. Done. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love what you said about eye contact. One of my friends, uh, Carrie Sherito, who is a nurse practitioner, she's so good at trauma-informed care. And she talks about how when people won't make eye contact with us, that that's one of those big signs. And she said, you maintain that eye contact even when they won't. And she said, at first, that might seem like you're being disrespectful, right? Because you're trying to like keep the eye contact with them and they're looking away. She said, but there's a really good chance that no one's ever given them that courtesy. 
that the people that they are supposed to rely on the most in their lives are abusing them. But when we give them that courtesy of eye contact, it shows that we respect them and that we're, we're trying to see them and we're trying to hear them. Yes. And I, in my, it's funny because I don't think that I am actively thinking about it, but I was thinking that Friday is I want her to catch me looking at her because I want her to know I'm here for her and I care about her. So yeah, that felt like a really big win by the end of that. Um, Any other recommendations for ways that we can care for those patients? I really love what you said about, about them having control that, that is such an important piece of it. And, you know, you talked about the vulnerable position and then laying back and how vulnerable that is. And, you know, in the vein of really horrible statistics is that one in five women have been sexually abused as a child, 75% of them report oral penetration as part of their abuse. So then let's put ourselves in that situation as being a woman who we have, you know, we hopefully we're asking our patient to put on something over their eyes, you know, we're laying them back, their heads are, their hands are down in their lap. It's very, very vulnerable. And then we're putting something in their mouth. And, you know, you and I haven't even got into the brain science around what does a a PTSD trigger look like? And then what happens in the brain? Why does it happen? So what is that person experiencing in that moment when all I did was put a mirror in your mouth, right? Right. But what's going on in his or her body and their brain, and they feel out of control. And so giving them that control. And then one more thing I would add too, is it has to start in the waiting room. I think that as dental professionals, we're generally good at this, but what I'm seeing in my own personal experience in medicine, I think medicine really needs some work with those first contact moments in the waiting room. So I'm going to walk out, not to the door. I'm going to walk out into the waiting room up to my patient. And I'm going to say, hi, my name's Candace. And I'm going to be your hygienist today. I'm going to be with you the rest of the appointment. I'm not going to leave them guessing about who I am or what my role is going to be in their appointment. They know right then. And then I have a nice little chat with them on the way down the hall. And I think that gets left out. Sometimes we're in a hurry. We're opening the door. We're saying somebody's name, follow me. You know, we just, it's, it's 30 seconds. That could be the game. And I want to add rest. Yeah. I want to add to that too. We're very purposeful in the way we do our handoff um, with patients for the doctor coming in for the exam. Mm -hmm. I sit every patient up before the doctor comes in again. And and again, talking about, you know, the statistics of male versus female and all of that um, is we have, I work with male doctors. So when I'm introducing, I want the patient to be sitting up, not in that vulnerable position, then getting to meet and speak to the doctor. And my doctors always ask permission. Hey, is it okay if I lean you back and take a look around? So I think just all of those things are really important in making sure patients are comfortable. You're, you're hitting on all the trauma-informed care things, right? The asking for permission and the, the vulnerability, all those things, those are so, so important. And that handoff, when we look at the traumatized patient, having to retell their story is something that can be a trigger for re-traumatization. So when we have that patient that doesn't tell us anything is wrong with their mouth, and then the doctor comes in and they tell the doctor all of these things. And then we stand there feeling like, okay, I feel like a dumb dumb because I don't have anything to report to my doctor. Well, most likely that person has had experiences where they've had to retell their story over and over again. They've had to tell the hygienist or the nurse, and then the doctor comes in and ask again, and then they're telling the same thing over and over again. So we have a, this great platform with our dentist is if my patients already told me all the things that I need to be the one relaying it to the doctor in front of the patient. Yes. Don't yes. make them do it. Don't make them repeat it. Yes. We call that the trust transfer um, in our practice where we do that. The doctor comes in and we actually sit in a little triangle with the patient at the top and, and, you know, the doctor meets and greets and then says, Hey, what did we do today? And I'll talk about our assessments, what the patient's complaint is, what their experience has been. And yes, right there in front of the patient. So it's not one of those, you know, Hey, what were you guys saying about me back there? It's all a conversation with and about with the patient. Yes. Yes. I love that. I love trust transfer. That's awesome. Love it. So this has been super, super helpful. I want to ask one more question outside of our practice walls, out in our community, 
what can we do to help with the efforts to end trafficking? I love this question. Keep your eyes open, look around everywhere you go. Look, you know, if you're in the grocery store, if you're at places where there is a lot of sex trafficking or where there's money. So if you're at a sporting event and if you see something report it, and if the only thing you have in that moment is law enforcement, then do that. Because if it's something that's in the, just in the moment, that's probably who you're going to need to talk to is whoever the, the most available law enforcement is. If it's something like I experienced that was over here in my neighborhood, I felt like what was happening was a um, they were um, regulars there. Then I went to Homeland Security, but you can report to the Polaris Project. You can report to Homeland Security. You can report to your local law enforcement and just speak up. And, you know, where if you see something that doesn't seem right, it probably isn't right. And you know what? If you're wrong, that's okay. It's so much better to be wrong about that than to overlook it and let it go. Yeah, I agree. Well, I want to say thank you for what you do. Um, Thank you for sharing your time and your passion with us today. Um, We're going to post in our show notes, your um, Instagram, you know, everybody check out the counselor hygienist. Um, We will post your um, website info. And then I'm going to also post the polarisproject.com just so people can have access to that as well. Um, Is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up? I don't think so. I think we covered it pretty comprehensively. Thank you for this opportunity and giving me the space to share this. I hope my goal is always every time I speak, every time I do anything like this, that if it helps one person, even if I do this for 30 years and one person gets rescued, then, then that's my goal. And then I actually do want to say one more thing that there are tons of places locally. If, if you're listening to us now and you have like a stirring of how do I help, there are places in your town that need help. They're safe houses. They need mentors. They need people to provide meals. They need people to help raise money. There's a thing that I'm involved in where we go into strip clubs and we leave information for mental wellness. And I provide toothbrushes and things like that. And so it's, it's all over. So seek it out wherever you can, can volunteer help is needed. Awesome. Thank you so much, Candice. Um, like I said, for all you do and for sharing your passion with us today. Listeners, thank you for being with us this week. Um, I hope that you will take this information to heart. Um, You know, go ahead and check out the Polaris Project. Write that number down in your practice. Talk about it in your teams. Talk about some of these steps that you can take um, so that you're really taking the best care of your patients. And I hope everyone has a great week and we will see everybody next time. Thanks Bye-bye, for everybody. taking your valuable time to invest in yourself and listen to this episode. I hope it's been thought provoking, empowering, and stirred your curiosity. If you've enjoyed this content, please click the subscribe button to catch new episodes or share this episode with your colleagues. To keep track of upcoming Bulletproof events and opportunities, visit bulletproofhygiene.com or better yet, join the Mighty Network Bulletproof Hygiene community to connect with like-minded dental professionals that share ideas, struggles, and wins. Have a great week, everybody.